Hello from Midori House in London and welcome to Sunday Brunch here on Monocle 24. I'm Paul Osborne. Coming up today, being an author can be a lonely existence, but we'll meet two writers who are trying to take on that perception. Plus, we'll meet two female directors set to be among the next big talents to emerge in the UK. Also today... There are some things that I found in the book that exclude you from being either critically popular or commercially popular or popular among your own audience in some way. We'll look at the numbers behind writing a bestseller. We'll take a look through the weekend's papers and also... We brush the chicken with a very special recipe of piri piri that's been handed down from generation to generation, much like other traditional Algarvian recipes that have been handed down without much foreign influence over the years. That's the secret. Chicken secrets will be revealed in the next hour on Sunday Brunch, live from London on Monocle 24. So hello, welcome to Sunday Brunch, another uh, sunny weekend in London's never-ending heat wave, another weekend of poor clothing choices by your presenter who decided it was not shorts-wearing weather today, and another weekend in which the word Brexit features prominently on pretty much all of the UK's newspapers. We'll discuss that when we look at the papers in around about half an hour's time. First today, though... A study of the top 250 films that were produced in 2016 found that just 7% of them were directed by women. Women wrote 13% of them. Around a quarter of their producers were female. Now, all that comes despite the industry repeatedly accepting the need to act to encourage more women into filmmaking. Well, we're going to talk this morning about a project called iFeatures. It's a film development program here in the UK, which aims to showcase emerging talent by supporting 12 projects. This year, the shortlist features more women directors than men, and two are with me in the studio today. Uh, Georgia Oakley is the director of Blue Jean. Charlotte Regan is director of Nan. Uh, Georgia, let me uh, start with you, if I may. Tell me first a little bit about this film that you're currently working on. Uh, So the film's called Blue Jean, and it's set in the 80s, and it's about a PE teacher who is forced to lead a double life because she's gay, and at the time, being gay as a teacher meant that you face the possibility of being criminalised. And when a new student starts at the school, suddenly this um, carefully upheld air of ambiguity is threatened. Um, So it's a drama with some thrillery elements. And uh, Charlotte, tell me about Nan. There's not even much to tell yet. I've not wrote much of it, but um, it's about a grandson who owes quite a bit of money to some local thugs. So him and his grandma have to go out dealing cocaine to make the money back. Now... I imagine there are lots of people who are thinking they'd like to make a film, they've got an idea or they're working on something. How do you then, how did you then decide to uh, get involved or apply for this iFeatures project? Um, Well, iFeatures is pretty well known by most uh, aspiring filmmakers, I'd say, in, in this country. It's always been, it's always produced really brilliant films that have gone on to do really well around the world and so yeah it was just definitely something that was on my radar I I never expected to actually get onto it but um, it was always going to be something that I applied for when the opportunity came up. And Charlotte when you when you get told that you're you're on the shortlist now you're going to get you're going to get helped and you're going to get some support what's that like? 
Yeah, it's it's amazing because similar, I'd seen like the leveling and Lady Macbeth, and just seen how it really kind of supported films that may not get support elsewhere. So it was like amazing being told we were on it for sure. Yeah. Uh, let's look at this. The, the numbers, you know, more than half the projects this year are by female directors. I think two fifths of them are, are all female teams, and then a quarter feature talent that come from minority groups. I mean. This is a project that involves, I think it's the BBC and the BFI. So how important is it for an organisation like that that can commit some money to this kind of thing, to to make that decision, to say, actually, we're going to make a specific effort now to target female directors, people from minority groups, and give them the opportunity to do this? Uh, Yeah, I think think they mentioned that they just got, like, some... It wasn't... Yeah. So much that they were pushing nice that there were just amazing applicants from women and diverse groups, which is like a great position to be in. They got so many applications that, you know, some of the best ones were from women and mm. people of diverse backgrounds. Yeah, and I think <clears throat> it's been proven time and again that actually at this level, there are just as many female directors as male directors um, aspiring to make feature films it's really the big drop-off comes a bit later and that's sort of where the problem is obviously I think Creative England who run iFeatures have one of the best track records of of any group supporting female directors um and that I don't think that's something that they set out to do that's just because it's just because the groundwork has meant that you're getting the application yeah I think so I mean they had 800 applicants for iFeatures and I think there must have been a lot of women in there and I I wouldn't be surprised if 58% of them were women but but it's later on where the difficulty comes I think in terms of... Why do you think that is? I mean we we mentioned those statistics in in the introduction, 7% of the top films, top 250 films of 2016 were directed by women, 13% of them were written by women. Why is there that drop off? Well, the million, the million pound question. Uh, there, but why, why do you I think? I mean, simply, that I think it's not as simple as this. But often people say that women just aren't trusted with bigger budgets, and it's pretty bleak to think of it in that way. But that is, that does seem to be something that's proven time and again. Because at a lower end in, in indie features, there are a lot of female directors. So. It's persuading the, the the people who hold the purse strings of what are quite a small number of studios to do that. How, because how do you do that if you don't... If, if the theory is you say, ah, oh, but we've given women these big budget films before and it's not worked, the only way to prove that that's wrong is to hand control of big budget movies to more women and for them to work. Yeah, exactly. And I think that is beginning to happen. I mean, in the last year, there's been um, a couple of directors who've made films for the, you know, female directors who've made films in the £200 million bracket for the first time, I think. But, um, yeah, it's it's not, it's an unconscious bias that exists. It's not something that people are aware or studios are aware that they're doing. But the fact is, you know, if someone, if a female director is given an opportunity and then it doesn't work out, that's their career done. Whereas it has been proven that, you know, male directors who've done the same thing in the past might then be given another opportunity and it's things like that that have caused this huge disparity and charlotte presumably one advantage to this is that the 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 more women that are coming in at the beginning of their careers and getting support and getting to get these films out into cinemas and getting people to see them the wider the talent pool that can then chase down executives 
not just in Europe, but in, in the States as well. Yeah, no, for sure. And I think it's changing in that them kind of leaders or the people in them positions hopefully are becoming different people and it's not just a problem with women I think it's a problem with diversity and with class as well within the film industry so I don't just see it as like a women-led problem I think it's everything but things like you know like Get Out doing so well or Lady Macbeth I think off like steps towards people in them positions allowing women or people from diverse backgrounds giving them different positions and more opportunities and you can argue i suppose you know the the people at the top of the film industry kind of make these assumptions about what audiences want and then from that they make assumptions about who can deliver that for those audiences but if you take get out as an example of a film that doesn't fit into that box but does fantastically well and hopefully starts to change the way they think about it yeah yeah no for sure and i think lots of smaller budget features are, are doing that all the time like even um Young Offenders, which was about two working class boys in Ireland, which was a really low budget, went on to do incredibly well. So I think people's things are changing, especially now people are watching online or at home. Like what they want to see is changing all the time for sure. And what you don't presumably want to have happen is for there to be extra support, extra investment, more films being made, but them being kind of siloed. I mean, you said you know it's not, it's not just it's not just about women directors. It's about representation across minority groups, across class, across background. You don't want these siloed into a box that is kind of. Mm. In the old days, we would have in the UK would have thought, oh, that's a very Channel Four kind of film, mm. isn't it? That's a very that's a late night minority film. It's not it's not something of mass audience interest. You want to sort of prove that these things can reach the same audiences. Yeah, and I think that's something that I features has really championed. I mean. Um, one of the films that was developed through iFeatures but then went on to be produced elsewhere was God's Own Country and that I think a few years ago might have been sidelined as as a sort of niche concept drama Um, but it went on to do really really well around the world in terms of box office and uh, same for Lady Macbeth so yeah I think things are really changing and people are beginning to see these kinds of films as something other than niche do you think do you think governments could do more because I, I you always hear when you speak particularly there's a in the UK there's a government department that's supposed to cover culture and creative industries and we're always being told how important creative industries are to the UK but do you think that actually there's enough being done to encourage people into them or do you have to sort of find your own way in I mean we were talking about this before we came in and we both felt that at, when you're making short films um and and moving on to the the sort of level that we're at now, transitioning between shorts and features, there really does feel like th- 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 there's more opportunity for for anyone who because anyone can pick up an iPhone and make a short film. So um, I don't think the problem really is with encouraging people to get in. I think that already the BFI and places like that, BFI Film Academy, do great things encouraging young people to get into film um, across all um, backgrounds and races and etc. But I, I, I think the problems come come later on. So maybe, I don't know, maybe the government could get involved, but I don't know how that would work. I, I suppose, the other one of, one of the problems, the opportunities that you, that you talked about a minute ago about more people watching online, more people are finding things that they wouldn't necessarily have found in from sort of mainstream uh, distribution. The problem, of course, is that there's just so much of it now. There's a report in one of today's newspapers talks about how people under the age of, I think, 24, 25 
there's a huge proportion of them that just never, ever come across, for example, anything made by the BBC. They just don't because it's just not their world anymore because it's they spend more time watching YouTube or Netflix than they do watching television. And when you're producing content that in the past maybe you would have hoped to get into some cinemas or would have hoped to get onto television, now presumably the first thing you've got to do is actually get people to watch it because there's just this infinite amount of choice. I suppose it's just about adapting to that because you see it with a lot. I have a lot of friends who have just picked up, you know, an SLR on their housing estate, have filmed their mates and they go viral online. So it's just about finding things that can tap into the audiences in other ways, I suppose. And I suppose maybe bigger companies or organisations are just... It's taken a long time for them to kind of catch on to them other methods or to change their workflow to suit it, as where kids who can just pick up a camera, produce something and get it out within a day are quickly, you know, filling that gap. But someone called Tyrell did, like, the Hood documentary, which he filmed, I think, just on a really small camera and it got millions of views online and he consistently did it, you know, week by week and... I think that went on to be developed by BBC Three. So I think there's opportunity. It's just about thinking of what the audience on them different platforms want to see. Uh, now, we mentioned at the beginning that, that both your projects have been um, shortlisted for, for iFeature. So what happens next? We get a lot of uh, development support. We do labs. We kind of work together for the next few months on doing kind of a quite good script, hopefully, like a first or a second draft. And we deliver that in January. January, yeah. And we, yeah, so we've got like story story workshops and directing workshops, producing workshops. And between each of those, we kind of have to go back and rework the script and get it somewhere where we're happy with it by the end of January. And you have in your head a, a date when you actually want a finished product. Finished product as in as finished in film? Finished film, ready ready to be seen. Um, at the moment, not, not an end date because this part of the programme is development. So it's all about getting that script to a place where we're happy with it. And then you would embark on kind of the next stage, which would be trying to get the money together to make the thing. Well, congratulations to both of you getting on the shortlist and uh, best of luck with the development and everything that follows. Thank you very much for coming in this Thank morning. You. Thank you. Uh, Georgia Oakley and Charlotte Regan, two of the uh, directors who are involved in this year's iFeatures programme. Still to come uh, this morning, we're going to be trying some Algarvian food as well as uh, discussing ways to combat the loneliness of being a writer. You're listening to Monocle 24. Stay one step ahead of the breaking news. People are saying, look, enough is enough. The middle class is getting squeezed and squeezed and squeezed. The rich are getting richer. And uh, they're saying, look, this is not a fair game. Hear industry-leading insights from our experts. When tech companies have problems, they can go south very quickly. Blackberry, Nokia nowhere near the companies they used to be but both were invincible nokia boasted that they were one of the first companies on the planet to sell one billion of their products and catch up with monocle's bureau around the world every weekday at noon london time keep your appointment with the briefing on monocle 24. Well, it's time now for a regular feature on Sunday Brunch, The Weekend Read, where each week we hear from a different author about their latest work. This week, it's Ben Blatt, a data journalist. His book is called Nabokov's Favourite Word is Morph, what the numbers reveal about the classics, bestsellers 
and our own writing. It's all about the facts behind literature. And Ben spoke to Georgina Godwin. So in general, my book is kind of looking at writing, which obviously is usually kind of considered a pure art and craft, which I think it is, but looking at it from kind of a quantitative angle and kind of just checking on or challenging conventional wisdom. So kind of the parable that I opened the book with was in the United States, it was very unclear for over 100 years who wrote the Federalist Papers, whether or not it was James Madison or Alexander Hamilton. And there were these disputed papers since they were published anonymously originally. And as it turned out, if you kind of look at the word frequencies of these essays and not look at any fancy words, but just look at the frequency for which people use kind of basic words like the and or because or whatnot, it's actually kind of extremely predictable who wrote which anonymous essay just based on these rates. And kind of the takeaway there is not just that you can predict authorship based on this, but the reason that works is that because authors, whether they be amateur fan fiction authors or Pulitzer Prize winning novelists, actually used a very consistent writing style throughout decades of the career. And using that, we can kind of look at all sorts of writing and the patterns that writers use. Mm. Now, each chapter begins with a quote from a famous writer. So chapter two is Virginia Woolf from A Room of One's Own. She says, it's fatal for anyone who writes to think of their sex. And you delve into if you can tell the gender of a writer by text analysis. Yes. So it's a much debated question and people have been talking about it for a while. And I do do one small study in the book where I kind of look at are there any words you know, adjectives or nouns or whatever, they kind of indicate one author writing, you know, is it a male author or a female author? And just looking at any word there is. And there are some words that among certain genres are fairly indicative, but as it turns out, maybe just as indicative and much simpler than all of these is just looking at the ratio of pronouns in a novel. So for example, the ratio of the pronoun he to the pronoun she. And while female authors generally have a, you know, there's a big distribution, but they're generally centered around 50-50 in terms of their character's gender with about just as many he uses as she, male authors skew much more towards male heavy books. About 75% male was kind of the average. And there are some books that are, you know, considered classics in town school that, you know, are upwards of 98% male. The interesting thing here is that across time and across genre, this does differ, but even looking at kind of modern literary winners, the Pulitzer, the Booker Prize or whatnot, this pattern still holds true. Well, and there's this extraordinary table here of most gender indicative words in classic literature. So for instance, just to pick out a couple, for male words, contact is used often for female shrugged. I mean, those are not immediately obvious. One thing I think especially was that I wanted to know not just which words were generally indicative, but which words male authors used to describe their female characters and which words female authors used to describe their male and female characters. And there is a weird asymmetry in terms of how males and females describe each other. And you can kind of see there are some general trends where male authors are much more likely to say their female characters were interrupting other people And there's a few other asymmetries like that that uh, are kind of bizarre. But once you kind of see it and look at a few examples, it's interesting to reveal that these words are in some ways gendered. Can you judge a book by its cover? I was maybe not even trying to see if I could judge a book by its cover, but seeing if we could judge an author by its their book cover. So, for example, I looked at all books and I kind of drew a very tight 
square around the author's name to see what percent of the book cover was covered by the author's name. And that was just kind of motivated by, you know, realizing a couple of the books I had on my shelf by very well-known authors. The actual name of the author was much bigger on the cover than the book title itself. And this is especially true for, you know, a classic author's lesser-known book. But as it does turn out, you know, the more bestsellers you write, the more New York Times bestsellers you write, which is the metric I looked at, the bigger your name grows on your own book covers. And there are some authors like Nora Roberts, whose name actually takes up around 45% of the entire book cover, which is, you know, bigger than the book title itself. So that's like her name compared to the entire cover. And, you know, even if on these books, it's kind of funny because you flip them to the back and on some of her books, there's literally no words on the back cover. It's just a portrait of her. So it's kind of a good way to get the reputation or uh, maybe self-image of each individual author. What makes it a great opening sentence? Great opening sentences are tough because for a whole novel, you're very lucky in that you can kind of analyze hundreds of thousands of words, but an opening sentence is just one kind of one take per book. So that makes it tough both from data analysis and also, of course, if you're an author and editor trying to make a very memorable line. But in general, the shorter the opening line, the better. And the way I was kind of judging this was by looking at compilation of lists that kind of ranked the 100 best opening sentences of all time and the average length of those compared to the average length of each author's sentence and found they were much, much shorter. Obviously, you can think of Call Me Ishmael with uh, Herman Melville and Moby Dick, but there's plenty of other authors like Toni Morrison almost always opens with an opening sentence that's about four or five words and it's had a very good track record. So there are obviously exceptions to the rule and sometimes that is what makes an opening sentence or sentence pop, but it was kind of fascinating to see how consistent shorter sentences were at being remembered and being talked about. Mm. Finally, I interview a lot of writers and quite often they complain that when they're giving talks, people want to be told the secret. What's the secret to writing a bestseller? How do you make it fabulous? And as they often point out, there is no winning formula. But actually, if you analyse the data, there might be. Is there? You know, I wouldn't say there's a secret formula that would guarantee success by any means, but there are certain rules that almost certainly, if you break, will kind of exclude you from reaching that bestseller status. One thing I looked at was, and perhaps this is, when you first hear it, it seems a bit sad, is that the reading level of New York Times bestsellers has gone down tremendously over the decades, so that now... Essentially, the bestseller now that has the average longest sentence length and the average, you know, the longest average word length, those average lengths are still shorter than the bestseller was in 1960. So essentially, kind of the most complex bestseller now is simpler than the simplest was in 1960s. And that kind of just goes with the general trend that people want to read something kind of fast concise, without too much flowery language, without too much complexity, something that's exciting and has action in it. And this trend is very consistent among kind of different genres that are all commercial genres. So, you know, is the secret formula just to make it as simple as possible? That's not going to guarantee a bestseller by any means. But there are some things that I found in the book that exclude you from being either critically popular or commercially popular or popular among your own audience in some way. And that was Georgina Goldwyn talking to Ben Blatt, whose book, uh, deep breath to read this title out, uh, Nabokov's Favourite Word is More, What the Numbers Reveal About the Classics, Bestsellers and Our Own Writing. 
That is a long title. His book is out now. Uh, you can hear more uh, from our Meet the Writers series. There's a full back catalogue available at monocle.com. That can be a lonely life, being a writer. Hours, days, months spent hunched over a laptop. And we're going to talk now to two authors uh, about that and about efforts to combat it. Lydia Ruffles and Chloe Esposito both felt that isolation to some extent and set up a writing group to try to help others in a similar position. They joined me in the studio um, this morning. Uh, Chloe, let me start with you, because that whole idea of solitude of being alone in a room with a laptop to think and to create is part of what makes writing so appealing to some people not me (laughs) i hate it i hate the loneliness i'm a social writer i really enjoy having writing dates especially with lydia we have such fun i think also for me it's being alone with those characters because i'm writing um the protagonist of my trilogy alvina knightley is a sociopath and she's really quite frightening and she does things that shock me and I just have to get away from it sometimes and be with other people. <laughs> uh, we'll, we'll, we'll get to the writing dates in a minute because the, the notion fascinates me but but Lydia when you talk about that idea of being isolated while you're writing and it, it, I suppose it can be a good thing because it can give you time to think, it can be a bad thing because you're isolated. How does that manifest itself? How does the isolation manifest itself? Um I mean, I think I do it for for slightly different reasons, actually. I think I am all too easily sucked into the the isolation and find myself spending lots of time by myself staring out the window and that's where having uh, someone like Chloe comes in (laughs) very, very handy to pull me out of that. And um, I think otherwise I I as well write quite um, dark material and just having having someone to meet up with and to kick around ideas and make sure you're not disappearing too far inside yourself, I think, is is really valuable um, and important. So how did you two actually meet? We met on a writing course at Faber Academy, which is a writing school in London, um, at the beginning of, was it 2015? January 2015. Yeah, so about three and a half years ago now, and we um, hit it off straight away. We were the keen ones that sat right in the front of the class next to the teacher um, and would meet up every after every class. And we started just like going, kicking around ideas together and swapping little bits and talking through like the early, um, the I guess like the kind of embryonic ideas of our first books. Um, and then that kind of progressed into meeting more regularly, writing together. And then we it just so happened that our first books were published within a couple of months of each other um, and our second books are coming out within a couple of weeks of each other so we've been very much in tandem through the process there is this i suppose it's almost a cliched phrase of the difficult second novel is it true yeah. Yes. <laughs> Why? Is it? Because you have your whole life to pour into the first one and you've been building up to this moment and you've got loads of ideas and then you've written it and then you have like a year to write the next one. You're like, oh my goodness, what do I do now? And it's terrifying. Um, having said that, I think because of the nature of the book that I was writing, it was quite fun at the same time because I had to challenge myself to make it even more outrageous and push even more boundaries. Um, and, you know, I, I did make sure that I had some fun writing dates as well. <laughs> yeah. So let's just start. What's a, what's a writing date? Um, it's where you meet up with one or more people um, with the intention of actually 
improving your word account, increasing your word count, but where you actually spend quite a lot of time just chatting and getting coffee and then getting lunch and then getting tea. We, we, <laughs> we pick three plot holes together, like test ideas with each other, and then we'll normally set a period of time, say like an hour, and do what what people call writing sprints. So we'll write down our word count and basically compete to see who can get the most words down um, within that time and then take a five-minute recharge and then go go at it again. It's just a very like motivating way of doing it. It makes you feel a bit more accountable. And um, I think there's something else about the second novel that is different is that obviously you're, well, in our cases, we were contractually obligated to provide it within a certain time frame. But still that time frame, whether that's six months or a year, can seem quite far away. Um, and so having someone to whom you're accountable before you, you deliver to your editor is is really motivating and helpful. Yeah, and I'm very strict with Lydia. You know, yes. if she wants a bathroom break or something like that, she has to really need it. Otherwise, to... <laughs> she's sitting on that chair until she's hit that word count. One of the things you just, you just mentioned, which is, I think, to people who don't do this will find slightly odd, is, not odd, but, but curious that... You've got a deadline. You're contractually obliged. It's gone really well. You've published your first book. Publishers come back. We'd love a second book. Brilliant. Right. By this date. Yeah. So if you could just summon enough creativity to come up with the idea, the characters, the story, everything else, get it written, finished by this date. Yeah. So you've got to create to a contractually obliged timetable, which sounds like a nightmare. It's it's, a t- it's just a totally different kettle of fish, but I think there are some things that also make the second book easier and that in doing the first one, you know, you've learned how to take criticism, you've learned how to work with an editor, you've learned how to, what kind of ideas don't, do and don't work, you've learned that you need more than one idea to kind of rub up against each other and create friction and how to sustain those over the course of a novel. So those kind of things you've made some headway with... Um, and I don't know, Chloe, whether you found this, but with mine, once I got to a certain point of the first one, I was already thinking about the next one. Although I wasn't really writing, it was kind of already cooking in my brain and things were like simmering and percolating and ready to burst out by the time I was, you know, re- required to sit down and write it. Absolutely. I, I continually have this problem that you're really excited about the next thing you're yeah, going to do. Shiny new thing. Shiny new exciting project. So because also it's quite hard going writing a novel. It's like a marathon and it, you can, you know, find it quite challenging. It is, you know, quite distracting to think about the, the shiny new thing you're going to do that in your head is perfect and has no problems and is just going to be so much more wonderful and easier. And <laughs> you mentioned at the beginning that you you don't like the isolation and the, and the, the working together is, is really important to you. But how do you strike the balance? Because presumably you do still need time on your own because you're all working on your own projects. So you need time alone to develop them. How do you strike the balance between the time alone and spending time with others who are doing the same thing. I mean, the truth is most of the time I am on my own with my laptop. So it's such a welcome treat to go and meet Lydia or I used to have a writing group um, every evening uh, once a week. I'd meet with some other writers and we'd discuss each other's work and that was such a refreshing break as well. Um, But in some ways, you're never really alone because you're with your characters and your characters take on lives of their own and you're sort of hanging out with them and their voices pop into your head and this is going to sound crazy. (laughs) (laughs) But I think also like a lot of writing is done when you're not actually at your laptop sitting down writing, like you're eavesdropping people on the bus, wearing your headphones, pretending that they, you can't hear them or, um, you know, you're kind of talking through things in the shower to yourself. 
Um, please nod in agreement that you do this as well. So we're just clarifying. Everyone talks for themselves in the shower yes. and spies on people yes. on public transport. Correct. Like how to be a successful writer. Yeah, just write all this down. <laughs> yeah. and, a, and a lot of ideas will just pop into your head when you least expect it. You're not working on the book, but you're just trying to fall asleep and you'll get the dialogue come to you yeah. from the characters and I have to write it down because then you'll forget it. So I just put it in the notes section of my phone, that kind of thing. Yeah, I think it's one of the things that I, it took me a while to get my head around as well as the idea that daydreaming is actually part of the job. Um, sitting and thinking about things is actually part of the job. And so w- when you've got to deliver 80,000, 90,000 words by a certain point, if you don't see that number going up, it can be a bit intimidating at first and you can feel like you're not making progress. But actually, the thinking time is is just as important. Um, let, let's talk specifically about, about what you're both uh, writing because, Lydia, I know you've, you've written about mental health quite yes. a lot. You've written about trauma and a very specific uh, neurological trait as well. Yeah, so um, I, I have a, a trait called synesthesia, which is where uh, your senses overlap, and there's, there's lots of different kinds of it. Um, but the kind I have means that when I am in a really bad migraine phase, um, I can taste words and feel sounds, and, and that fed a lot into my first book, um, The Taste of Blue Light, and my second book, colour me in the challenge there was to not give the characters synesthesia um, because now it's sort of part of parcel of the way that I think and I think it it still kind of feeds into the way that I write the way that I think about colour and sounds and light and um, sensory information and uh, Chloe and you you, you mentioned that you met on on a writing course and then after the opening passage of your first novel goes out you have 20 odd people all sort of bickering to represent you. I mean, what's that like? Oh, gosh, it was a dream come true. I mean, you are terrified going into that room full of literary agents um, reading the opening of your novel that you've been working hard on for it was about nearly a year at that point. Mm. Um, and it was a dream come true having, yeah, 21 literary agents offering to represent you. So um, I just, I knew at that point that it was something commercially viable and I really had to take it seriously and finish it. But it wasn't quite finished at that point. Um, so... If we, if you consider all of it, the isolation, the um, talking to yourself in the shower, listening to people <laughs> on the bus, the meeting up for coffee, uh, the contractual obligation to write ninety thousand words, presumably you wouldn't you wouldn't give this up for, you know, working in a shop or working in an office. Um, n- no, because it sounds quite stressful. It, um, I I think. It- the, the, yeah, some of the problems that we talk about, we're kind of aware that they're very high quality <laughs> problems and that this is a dream job for a lot of people. Um, and, and I certainly wouldn't do anything else. Um, but, I, but I actually, I do find that um, it's quite draining on some parts of the brain. Like it, it takes obviously a lot of creative, emotional in, investment and um, it, it doesn't use so much of like the analytical side of my brain. So I actually am about to start a master's in September to try and sort of bring some balance to that um, because... I don't know that it's sustainable to kind of produce a, a novel every like six to nine months um, over, over the course of, you know, a, hopefully a long writing career. I don't know. What do you think, Chloe? Um, I can't imagine doing anything else. It's what I always wanted to do. And even though it's hard, I've had quite a lot of other jobs and careers. <laughs> yeah, we've, we've both had a rich and varied career before becoming writers. <laughs> so I'm going to stick at it. <laughs> Well, there you are. If you uh, happen to be sitting on a bus in London, um, 
bear in mind that the person sitting across from you with their headphones on may not be listening to anything other than you. Uh, Lydia Ruffles, Chloe Esposito, thank you both very much for coming in this morning. You're listening to Monocle 24. In just a moment, we're going to look through the weekend's newspapers. Subscribe today to become part of the Monocle family. From product design to the best places to go, Monocle will bring a monthly dose of fresh ideas to your door. Being part of the family also comes with a 10% discount at the shop and online, as well as unlimited access to our online archive. In addition, you will enjoy priority access to selected product collaborations and receive exclusive offers and invitations around the world. Subscriptions start from £55. For more information, visit monocle.com forward slash subscribe. Well, time now to uh, take a look through the weekend's newspapers. My guest in the studio, the uh, journalist and broadcaster, Juliet Foster. Good morning. Very good morning to you. Uh, let's start in uh, in Zimbabwe, in mm. the uh, Sunday Telegraph. Yes, that's correct. It's one of those stories which, well, I chose it because I don't really feel that it's had enough coverage. But Zimbabwe has been through some extraordinary times lately. And uh, there is an election coming up. You've got uh, Emerson Magnitsky. Mgagwa, I think that's the correct pronunciation. He was this Robert Mugabe's security chief. You then had this very peaceful handover of power, which was very protracted. But uh, he's now hit the election trail, Mr. Mgagwa, and he's trying to woo back a group of voters who were alienated from Robert Mugabe. These are the white farmers, because if you remember, under Mr Mugabe's government, um, their lands, their their farms were forcibly snatched from them, taken away and basically distributed to ZANU-PF supporters. And what uh, Mr Mangagwa is saying is that, look, we need you to come back because a lot of these farmers left the country. Some of them tried to resist the capture of the farms. Some of them were jailed or whatever. And he has been wooing them back. OK, he's done this on a very small scale because I think there was something like a, around 250 people who responded to an invitation to, to meet at uh, Harari's race course. Harari, of course, is the Zimbabwean capital. And he's basically said to them, come and help us. We used to do horticulture. We must get back to it and become a breadbasket country again. And that's the point. That before you had um, the the land program, the forcible return of these of the the, the farmlands, etc. Zimbabwe did have this reputation as a breadbasket of Africa, and then of course the irony that as the economy started going backwards because it had the most astonishing rate of inflation, it, it ran into several digits, that uh, it, it ended up having to, to buy in the food. And of course, it meant that for ordinary Zimbabweans, it became very expensive to live. Some of them were having to cross the border to pick up work elsewhere and do all sorts of things. So it's interesting that he's trying to woo back this group of supporters or this this group of the, the electorate. Whether they're actually be tempted to come back, whether they have enough trust in him is another thing altogether. That's the thing, isn't it? Because although, as you say, you know, Mugabe ended up in the end, departing without mm. shots being fired and fighting on the streets, a lot of people are still sort of holding their judgments to see to what extent things are going to change. Absolutely, because um, Mr. Mangagwa, he was the security chief. So there is the argument that, okay, so you liberated us from Robert Mugabe, but why should we trust you, given that a lot of the, the policies that he put forward you were one of the instruments that he used to resist or to to actually clamp down on those who tried to resist. And at the same time, we shouldn't forget the fact that he faces a challenge from um, the opposition movement for democratic change. Now, their leader, Morgan Changarai, 
he died of cancer. But he's been replaced with um, his successor, who's Nelson Chamisa. And again, very organised. It's it's a very tight contest. So the question is, which way is it likely to tip? I mean, I suspect that Mr Magagua will, will win. But I mean, I, I don't know. I don't have a crystal ball into the future. But presumably, if he does win, then the sensible thing to do would be to work with Mr Chamisa and to find a way forward. And certainly, when you had this this handover of power from Mr Mugabe, you found that um, the a lot of investors, international investors, who had previously been on the sidelines because they didn't like the way that Zimbabwe was going, they were they felt quite reassured from some of the noises that were coming out of Mr Mugabe's mouth. But um, again, it's now down to the electorate, and whether he wins over this uh, this pocket of, of supporters, the white farmers, quite a substantial pocket, I hasten to add. Um, in terms of the reaction to the speech that they've had so far, which, which they heard from Mr Mugabe, um, it was welcomed. You had um, one woman who said, "What a turn up for the books! It was great for the first time in 38 years to be spoken to like this." Now, um, on the same page of the Sunday Telegraph yeah. uh, this morning uh, is is another story. There's, there's an intriguing headline. I mean, this could apply to any number of leaders, though I can guess which one it probably is. Uh, your favourite president <laughs> did nothing wrong. Yeah, and that, that is a headline. It's actually it's actually putting in quotation marks. And it's, it's the headline underneath that. Trump questions legality of the taping of his conversation with lawyer about payments to model. I mean, the thing is, Donald Trump, he's he's the best free show in town, really. But um, this, this relates to... Um, it is very complicated. It's hard to simplify, but basically, he's responding to to um, th- these claims that um, a conversation he had had with his lawyer Michael Cohen was tape recorded, and this recording does exist. We know this because Mr. Trump's attorney is, is the former New York Mayor Rudy Giuliani, and he's confirmed it. Now, the, this tape is in the hands of the FBI. They raided Michael Cohen's offices. And it supposedly revolves around this conversation with um, about about what to do with with the, with the issue of Karen McDonald. Now, Karen, Karen McDougall, I should say, Karen McDougall um, was a Playboy model, and she said that she had an affair with Mr. Trump, which lasted for about a year. It started after the birth of his son Baron. This affair started in two thousand and six, shortly after Mr. Trump's wife Melania gave birth to their son. Now, she said that she sold her story to the National Enquirer, that fine publication that we all love reading for its, for its extraordinary hold on the truth. But um, she apparently said that she sold her story to the National Enquirer and they paid her $150,000. But apparently there was a practice called catch and kill. So in other words, you get the story and you spike it, you don't publish it. Because this guy who owns the National Enquirer is a big fan of Donald Trump. Yeah, that's right. Um, it is the, the chap is called David Pecker. He's the chairman of the parent company, American Media. He's a great friend of Mr. Trump's and a supporter. So the, the, the argument is that he that this story was spiked when when Donald Trump was candidate Trump, and that um, the money which went to 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 pay McDougal, it you, it could you, the feds would argue well you could actually see that as a campaign contribution because after all it spiked the story and that bit of his his past was was died down. Now, Rudolph Giuliani he said yes this tape does exist but the proposed payment was a personal matter and not subject to campaign finance law. It was simply an attempt to resolve false allegations. Now, the problem that I have with this, and I'm not a lawyer, is that if somebody is saying something about you which is blatantly untrue, you say to them, you retract that and you apologise or see you in court. And there was no see you in court, but somebody whipped out a chequebook and 
paid her off. So it doesn't quite make sense. E- even if they're going to say, and you can see an argument where you would say, look, you know, there is supposed to be a client lawyer privilege here. Yeah. The, the conversations between lawyers and their clients are supposed to be confidential. And so you tape recording that conversation is, is in itself inherently dodgy activity. But... The fact that that someone was going around offering six figure sums to people, buying their stories of alleged affairs to Donald Trump, and then and then burying them and never publishing them, um, that's not lawyer client confidentiality. That's that's just a that's just a deal that happened. It's it's a deal that happened. But I I did read somewhere, not in this article, I hasten to add that um, even though Mister Mister Trump has questioned. The, the actual taping. So I, I do hear your point about the, the confidentiality issue. Apparently, if this conversation took place in New York, then he was actually right to do that. But then you have to ask yourself as well, why did he do that? Because even though he's actually gone on the record as saying, you know, Mr. Trump's my friend and I take a bullet for him, Donald Trump does have a reputation for stiffing people. In other words, you do them over so you get what you want out of them, but you drop them in the can. So maybe this was his own insurance policy that even though he thought me and Donald were like that, we're really good mates, just in case he flipped the other way, I've actually got some of my own protection here. Um Presumably, if this this chap who owns the National Enquirer is going around buying up the stories of anybody who could theoretically embarrass, <laughs> I hope he's got deep pockets. Well, one would imagine that he does have deep pockets because he's need them. Because, well, he certainly will need them because look, at the end of the day, if some sort of an offence has been broken, and I, I don't understand how American law works because it varies from state to state and whatever, but I mean, presumably, um, he would also have some questions to answer. But then, on the other hand, as well, um, we know that um, he that that uh, Mr. Cohen actually recorded this particular conversation. But then what other conversations did he record as well? So who else was paid to keep quiet, you know? So, but of course, Donald Trump has said, you know, I did absolutely nothing wrong because he said it's totally unheard of and perhaps illegal, referring there, of course, to... um, the the, um, the the recording. It's even more inconceivable that a lawyer would tape a client. Totally unheard of, perhaps illegal. The good news is that your favourite president did nothing wrong. Reassuring there. <laughs> Go back to bed, America. There's nothing to see here. Um, let's uh, move on to another story now. Uh, anti-Semitism. Yeah, this, this is a, this is an increasingly toxic political row. In it's Britain. extraordinarily toxic political row, and in actual fact, again, it's 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 with the Sunday Telegraph, and it's on page nineteen. And I chose this one because um, I thought I'd just sort of dive. Well, it's one of those those stories which it it, it straddles two camps: news and features. News because yes the issue of anti-Semitism, and in particular with the Labour Party, the opposition party, but also this story really personalises the issue. And it's a feature piece which is written by a lady called Mandy Blumenthal. And, and we should really be concerned by the content and also by, by, the, by the headline underneath the, underneath the main headline. Anti-Semitism is forcing us to leave. That's the main headline. Alarmed by anti-Jewish rhetoric and the politicians enabling it, Mandy Blumenthal feels at risk in Britain and says she's not alone. What they don't say in that headline is that she feels so threatened, so vulnerable that she and her partner are leaving the United Kingdom. Now, this is a lady who's in her 50s. Her partner's in his 50s. They were born and raised in this country. They have a British identity. They've had very successful careers in their respective fields. Her husband or partner, I should say, is a lawyer. 
and um, they, they, you know, they're two very intelligent people, lovely individuals, and they're just very concerned at the the way that anti anti semitism has just grown in this country. And I would argue, in, in fact, that um, Brexit probably made it a lot worse, that um, we know that it brought out some rather reprehensible individuals who latched onto the Brexit issue to really give vent to their bigotry. And if, and I, I also think it actually encouraged anti-Semitism as well. But um, some of, the, some of the, the things which have come up in here are incredibly disturbing. Um, she talks, for example, about... Um, some friends of hers, they had um, a friend's child, I'm going to read this, a friend's child called me up the other day, terribly upset. She is a student at Birmingham, this is Birmingham University, Birmingham, in the, the, in the West Midlands. She'd ordered a pizza and when she and her friends had got it home and opened it up, they saw someone had drawn a swastika on it in hot sauce. Funny ha ha. You know, imagine how those poor kids felt, you know. There are other instances of people being spat at, goodness knows what else. This really resonated with me because um, I was born and raised in this country and the things that she's referring to, um, it, reminds me, it reminds me of what it was like living in Britain in the, in the 1970s as a child because we heard the voices of the far right very loud and clear. I remember seeing the National Front marches on the television news and all this sort of stuff. We had Jewish friends who were attacked. Um, we were all kids together. We, um, we'd go home. We'd go one way. They'd go the other. They'd get attacked, attacked, beaten up, and goodness knows what else. And it breaks my heart to hear this same rubbish is happening all these years later. And as she said, you know, people are talking about it. And what's really sickening, the perniciousness of it, is that you can... It, it's just people who you think they're sort of quite sensible. They, they, they're saying comments which are, which are really unsettling. She says here, for example... Um, that she was in a taxi. The taxi driver said to me recently, not knowing I was Jewish, everybody's equal and everybody's good, except those effing Jews. <sighs> it's a special and reminder, it's the real world consequences, isn't it? Of, abs- of absolutely. And then we, we, just as we, as we wrap a story in the Sunday Times today saying that uh, voters, the front page headline of the Sunday Times, voters turn to far right. Uh, Juliet, we'll have to leave it there. Juliet Foster, thank you very much for your time thank this morning. Thank you. You're listening to Monocle 24. Well, finally, on today's programme, uh, we're off to uh, Casa de Frango, which has just opened in London Bridge. It brings a type of Portuguese food, which has never had much of a platform in the UK, Algarvian style. Uh, on the menu, piri-piri chicken cooked over wood charcoal using traditional techniques. Well, the co-founder is Marco Mendes. He spoke to Fernando Augusto Pacheco. My two uh, co-founders and I, Reza and Jake, we would spend a lot of time in the south of Portugal at my house, effectively. And they became enamored, as I'd always been, with the food, with Algarvian food and cuisine and culture. And one of the, the dishes that really caught their attention was frango con piripiri. And this is a staple Algarvian dish. And I've been eating it since I can remember. And it's a big part of my upbringing and forms a large, significant part of my memories and my nostalgia from my childhood. And we thought about it together and we thought we'd love to bring this concept and this energy to London and felt that uh, Algarvian cuisine hasn't really been represented many places in the world actually until now and and London was a good place for it to be and that's how we started it and we decided to see how could we capture this culinary identity and how could we bring this food but with the USP of, of Frango Compiripiri to London. 
That's very true because, you know, you mentioned that people don't know. I mean, we do have some chains, but I think what you're trying to do is to be very much authentic from your experience because you do have connections to Portugal as well, right? That's right. I mean, I'm obviously half Algarvian. I'm half Portuguese from the Algarve. My father is from Almancil in the south and my mother is English. I've spent a lot of my life in the country and, and that's where my home is. And yes, so that's kind of how over the years I've, I've always been proud of my heritage and wanted to do something with that. And being as, you know, we are, we are all three of us very passionate about food. This is a dream come true for us all. Tell us about the frango piripiri. Of course, that's the main star of the dish. So tell us a bit more. Where do you get this, the chicken, the recipe? Who is helping you? Who is Absolutely. the chef? And So we have a um, great team in the kitchen. I was actually went down to Portugal to one of my favorite restaurants and had heard that one of the grill masters there had left. I went and found him and, uh, and tried to convince him to come to London. His name is Lucidio. And he has an amazing ability to grill this chicken. And one thing about Frango Piri Piri is it seems as it is with other Algarvian dishes, quite simple, but it's actually very, very complicated. And although you're just grilling over wood charcoal, there are those that can and those that can't. And there are many more that can't. And he is one of the best. So we're really pleased to bring Lucidia to London with us and he uh, can be seen any day in the open kitchen grilling our chicken and uh, we're really happy with that but the truth is the background of Frango Piri Piri has a lot to do with Africa the south of Portugal like most of Portugal has very strong ties to North Africa Algarve itself means uh, the west and is Arabic and we have a lot of connections to that and Piri Piri is the African devil spice it's the bird's eye chili Frango con Piri Piri is grilling the chicken over wood charcoal the chicken is not marinated in the south of Portugal we use 900 gram chicken and we like to call it Frango do Campo so chicken from the woods mm -hmm. we brush the chicken with a very special recipe of Piri Piri that's been handed down from generation to generation much like other traditional Algarvian recipes that have been handed down without much foreign influence over the years and that's the secret Everybody has a different version of the recipe. I've grown up with one and I'm really pleased with what we've used. And we brush the chicken as it comes off the grill and then we cut it and we brush it again. And it has olive oil, garlic, lemon, sometimes tarragon, paprika, depending on how you like to do it, bay leaf. It's that recipe that is what defines, I think, the experience of Frango Piri Piri. Oh, you're making me hungry here, I have to say. <laughs> and, and it's funny that you mentioned, because, you know, let's talk about other parts of the menu. You mentioned the African influence. There's one dish, correct me if I'm wrong with the name, is, a, is some sort of African rice as well, Africano. which you can have like yeah. together. I like when you have good sides, because I think sometimes they're as important as the main dish. There's some amazing sides in there as well. Thank you very much. Yeah, I mean, Arroz Africano makes me smile every time I think mm. about it. No Af African rice recipe is the same and if you speak to people from different countries in Africa as we you know we have working with us as well a Mozambican African rice will be different than an Angolan African rice but what they have in common is they're very much appreciated in the south of Portugal and they pair well a lot with Portuguese dishes so that is one of the dishes we have and um, one of our chefs uh, Lucien Green who's developed some of the menu he he's created an incredible African rice for us which has chicken skin it has plantain it has chorizo and it has a darker texture to it and, and it's really delicious and it, it works so well with chicken and other dishes so that's the dish I think you were mentioning otherwise of course we have uh, roj do polvo which is uh, octopus rice and that's done in the traditional Portuguese way again there's many different versions of it 
it and uh, we've taken our own interpretation. How's been the reaction so far? Really? Uh, so I'm sure you're yeah. a very busy man now in the first <laughs> days at least. Yes, uh, well, you spend all your day in the restaurant, but yeah. I'm very pleased to be there and we have a great team. That's really what makes it work and we are really busy and the reaction has been fantastic. I think it's uh, a side of Portugal that um, is yet to be discovered by a lot of people. Uh, Lisbon has become very popular mm. and I think now this is shining a little bit of the light on the Algarve which makes me really happy because the Algarve is all about sunshine and and relaxing and that's the sun is always shining because it's a very it's probably the area of Western Europe that is the the sunniest throughout the year. Oh, so we have that whole atmosphere I think is coming out in in our menu and and people are reacting really well to that. Well, that's Marco Mendes uh, speaking there to Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Uh, that wraps up this edition of Sunday Brunch. It was produced and studio managed by George McDonough. Our researcher was Amber Roberts. We have live music in the sessions of Midori House for you in just a moment. And a brand new Monocle Weekly is an hour away at midday London time. In just a moment, we'll update the latest news from around the world. Thanks so much for listening to this week's Sunday Brunch. Goodbye. <laughs>